you are listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical covenant congregation outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin. You can learn more about us at BethelCov.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Bethel. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. I always feel entirely too short for these big podiums, like I need a a step stool or something. Um, So I actually asked Will to sing that song. Um, It's been a song that I've just latched on to in the last few weeks, Um, and even looking forward to coming to be with you guys this morning. I don't know what your Christmas was like, but for our family, um, we experienced a few new things, new pieces of Christmas that were particularly sweet and meaningful. Um, One is just having a son that's away at college and getting used to the rhythm of he came home, and he's back in his room, and kind of getting used to that rhythm. Um, But maybe on a slightly more impactful scale for us, um, on Christmas Eve morning, I got a phone call from the social worker at the high school who said that there had been a fire at a small home in Holton, which is where our church is, the night before, and that a family of 11 who had been living in a small two-bedroom home had been displaced. And could I come to another home in the community where they were all gathered, 21 of them slept under a very small roof um, the night before. And so uh, myself and another member of the crossing who spoke Spanish, because this family's not originally from here, um, along with school social workers, Red Cross, there we were. And that is not how I had envisioned spending my Christmas Eve morning, and it was completely fine. We didn't have plans, but I was still putting together some last-minute things for our our first Christmas Eve service. And in the end, what I can tell you is it has been the most beautiful week in our family. Um, We brought one of the three families to church, a mom, two teenage girls, four-year-old little boy that came to church with us at four o'clock on Christmas Eve, and um, we brought them home with us. And they've been living in our house this week. And we've learned how to Maybe a little like an innkeeper who just had a back door in his house and said, sure, you can have it. Um, That's what we decided to do. And so we've been navigating a lot of new this week. Um, Sharing our space has been a beautiful gift. Both of our kids, thankfully, speak fluent Spanish. One of the girls speaks fairly fluent English. And so um, we've just been sharing space and doing life and helping them get back on their feet and figure out where they're going to live next. We're going to look at some rentals in town tomorrow. So I just want to share that because a week ago at this time, I would have had no idea that that's what was coming our way. But this is what God saw fit to do. And so we've been doing it. So I don't know what your Christmas held. Maybe it had some surprises too. But I just wanted to share that that's one of ours. And I'll be sharing a story a little bit later. So Pastor Todd asked me to join you this morning uh, to give you a little update on how things are going at the crossing. And also to pick up the next section um, in your sermon series on Matthew's Gospel. Which is a real gift because the last time I was here I feel like I just rambled through stories about our church plant and held you hostage for 45 minutes minutes. What I really need is 10 hot verses to preach, and that's what I've got. So um, if it's okay, I'm going to save the update on the crossing for the end, because I think it's actually going to help us land the message a little better this morning. And I've actually titled this this message, The Space Between, which goes with the song that Will just um, shared with us. So I don't know about you, but uh, for me personally, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, it just feels kind of awkward. It can sometimes feel like dead space. 
face. Uh, maybe like the spiritual equivalent to the sugar crash from all the sweets you eat, and then you crash and you're, you're kind of not sure what to do next. I feel like this is a time of year, and particularly this Sunday, when we've just consumed mass quantities of spiritual goodness about the birth of Jesus and Christmas, and then we're sort of left just staring blankly at the wall, waiting for New Year's to come. And then we can get serious about what we're really all about. That's what it sometimes feels like. It just it can sort of feel like that, that space in between. We go from the biggest and brightest announcement of the coming of Jesus to the expectations of moving into a new year with purpose, and we're not really sure what it's going to look like. So this morning, we're actually going to look at the story of Jesus in the desert in Matthew 4. And to me, it feels like this story is a little bit of a space in between for Jesus because he's, he's announced with power what he has come to do, but he hasn't yet started doing it. And in between sits Matthew 4, 1 through 11. So you have a Bible. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I would encourage you to open it as I read it for us. And then I'm going to pray. This is Matthew 4. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted, and he became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain. He showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away. And the angels came and took care of Jesus. Would you pray with me before we begin? God, it is good to be gathered here as your people together this morning. And we don't want to treat this like dead space between Christmas and New Year's. We want a fresh word from you this morning. And we trust your spirit will be faithful to give it. In Jesus' name, amen. So why is this story here? Pastor Todd shared with me that this is one of the questions that you're asking as you're working your way through Matthew. The other question he said you're asking is, what claim is this story seeking to make about Jesus? I think we have a lot to notice and compare in this story in order to answer these questions well. To begin with, the story opens with a really disturbing statement. Matthew, along with Luke, opens the story by telling us that it was the Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, I'm hoping I'm not the only one that's a little unsettled by this comment. Is the Holy Spirit co-opting with the devil? Not at all. Before we get into the specifics of each of the three temptations, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about where temptation comes from. Temptation is from the devil. 
period. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the Greek word for devil used here in this verse is literally tempter. It's a name, tempter. That is the name by which Satan is known. Tempter is his name, and tempting has been his game since the beginning. In fact, if we, if we do a quick comparison of Satan's first antics recorded in Genesis when he tempted Eve, we would notice he really hasn't changed up his game that much over time. He's still tempting people about food. He's still tempting people about whether or not God provides and can be trusted. Those were all in play when the devil first tempted Eve, and here they are all again. You would think he would learn some new tricks over time if he wants to be effective. He's really not that original if you think about it. But the tempter comes and he does what he does best. He tempts. That is not an action that we attach to the spirit. The spirit leads. And I would go so far as to say I think it is often because we are spirit-led that we are tempted. The nature of temptation is that it's seeking to put to the test what we have already resolved to believe. So if you're already doubting on your own, there's no point in using temptation tactics. My chronological study Bible, which I have with here me this morning, it's one of my favorites, it gave further insight into this uh, with the following definition of the word temptation. It should be on the screen here, and this is what it said said, temptation is the combination of a real need and a possible doubt that creates an inappropriate desire. This definition resonates for me. A temptation cannot work if it's not tied to something we are actually wanting or actually needing. But it comes packaged in fear and distorted desires. That's what makes temptation work. So let's see how the devil tried to use this approach with Jesus. Temptation number one, turning stones into bread. As we read, Jesus was in the desert. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Is bread a real need? Yep. Does the devil try to plant a doubt to create an inappropriate desire? You bet. He appeals to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. His hook is basically, if, I want you to notice that word throughout all three temptations, if you are really the Son of God, surely you don't want to starve out here in the desert. Nobody follows a starving Savior. How about you bake yourself up some nice hot bread from these sun-baked rocks? It would have been understandable in my mind if Jesus had gone the route of inappropriate desire on this one. But he didn't. Jesus doesn't reach for the rocks. He reaches for scripture to put the tempter back in his place. Jesus says, hey, this is not about the battle of the bread. My father said survival isn't about bread. It's about hanging on every word that he says. That is what sustains me. Temptation one, down, two to go. Temptation number two, the tempter says, all right, you got me on the bread one. 
Let's try this. And he leads Jesus up to the highest point in all of Jerusalem, the top of the temple, and he attaches a question of whether Jesus is really the highest being as the Son of God. He says, hey, if you're the Son of God, there's that word if again, if you are the Son of God, how about you jump off? Prove that God protects you. Interesting setup. Jesus is on the highest point, and the devil is questioning whether Jesus is really the highest being as the Son of God. And the test in his mind is whether he will prove that God protects by jumping off the roof. Remember, Jesus has not yet begun his ministry, and I'm certain that God's protection was at the forefront of his mind. But there was no way he was going to jump off of a building to prove it. This sort of feels like how many of you, when you were growing up, had a mom that said, well, if your friend tells you to jump off the bridge, right? It feels a little like that moment to me. Jesus is like, no, not doing it. The interesting add-on in this second temptation is that the devil pulls from something Jesus spoke to in the first temptation. Satan noticed that Jesus said, survival is all about God's word. Interestingly, just like the devil did with Eve, he tries to use God's word as the basis for his temptation in a distorted way. The devil thinks, huh, Jesus just told me that he responds to everything God says, so maybe if I quote God's word, he'll fall for it. Oof, turning up the heat. No doubt. But Jesus knows context matters. And he knows that what his half-brother James will later write after Jesus' death and resurrection in the book of James, James writes this. He says, the devil and the demons know scripture better than we do. He says, good for you if you know your Bible. The demons know it too. Here's the deal. Rotely quoting scripture does not mean that we are rightly applying scripture. Did you catch that? Rotely quoting does not equal rightly applying. Jesus knows the difference. So he says, you're right. I know God will protect me. And I surely don't need to jump off of a building to prove it to you. More importantly, I refuse to belittle God by putting him to the test with something I already know he will do. At the heart of this temptation was the real need for protection, combined with the doubt that maybe God wouldn't come through. But Jesus knew better, so he passes on this one too. Two temptations down, one to go. And of course, the devil saves what he believes to be his best game for last. He couldn't poke at Jesus' firm belief that God the Father would provide for him and protect him, but would God prosper and promote him? Temptation number three is the final showdown. This is not about bread or steeple jumps, friends. This one is about kingdoms and worship. The first two temptations opened with the devil openly questioning, if you are the son of God, then fill in the blank. This time, the question is implied, but it's never openly asked. Just a wide open shot at worship 
which essentially questions through the back door whether Jesus is the Son of God. The tempter takes Jesus to a mountaintop where all of the kingdoms of the world and their power and glory are visible. And he makes a straight invitation. Worship me and you can have all of this. Time out. False test. False test. Jesus already owns all of this, and he knew it. He knew it. The real test is not whether he gets kingdoms he already owns. The real test is whether he will set aside what he has already clearly proven, which is that he is the Son of God, and worship the devil. If Jesus were to say yes to this last temptation, it would essentially confirm the very thing that the devil had been trying to prove all along. It would prove that Jesus is not the Son of God. And if Jesus worships the devil, not only is he not the Son of God, but he forfeits all of the kingdoms that are being falsely offered to him. They would become the property of the one receiving the worship. In some ways, I think that while the stakes were a lot higher on this third and final temptation, I think the response was the easiest. The offer is so ridiculous that Jesus finally says, get lost, man, get out of here, and gives the devil one last sucker punch from Scripture. I kind of like that. This time he quotes from the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. And I even found this interesting after I finished my notes. He tells the devil, you must worship the Lord, your God. He's telling the devil who his God is. You must worship the Lord, your God, and serve only him. Let's not miss how the story ends. Verse 11 might be my favorite. I'm going to read it to us. It says, then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. The very verse that the devil himself quoted out of context becomes the very fulfillment of the protection Jesus knew all along that God would bring to him because he resisted temptation. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. When we overcome temptation, we find gateways to God's promise. We don't misuse scripture Jesus showed the devil, you're right. I don't test God. I stand on his promises. And look what happened in the end. There came the angels to tend him, just like the devil tried to tempt him to do. Back to our opening question. Why is this story here, and what claim is it trying to make about Jesus? I want to answer the second question first. I think the claim is this. The claim is... Jesus is the Son of God who performs perfectly under pressure where we fall short. That is what this story in Matthew's Gospel is trying to show us. Jesus' ability to pass the test, to resist these temptations, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the Son of God. Now, throughout the story, there are ties to another desert scene that I want to visit with you this morning where similar temptations were faced and failed. 
This too goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God was giving his people, the Israelites, the very words of the law that Jesus was using to resist the devil. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy almost every time. The giving of the law of Deuteronomy happened when Moses read the law to the people as God was forming them into a nation following their delivery and their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They had been declared free, but they had not yet found their way into the promised land. They were in a space in between, we might say, in a desert, just like the one Jesus was in in the story. When God's people were in the desert, God promised to provide bread for them. You remember the story. God said, I'll give you manna from heaven. But after a while, they were wandering in the desert, and they began to grumble and complain, and they started to demand what had already been promised to them. When God's people were in the desert, God promised to protect them, but they doubted. They doubted to the point that they accused Moses of dragging them out in the desert to kill them. And they said, you know what? Maybe we should go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. At least we had meat there. Had they lost their mind? When God's people were wandering in the desert, God told them that they were to worship him only. Deuteronomy 6, the words Jesus quoted. But instead, do you remember what they did? They built a golden calf. In each of these temptations, God's people failed miserably, where Jesus performed perfectly. The interesting thing about the space in between for both Jesus and the Israelites is this. Both had already been set apart for something, but they had not yet realized it. They were in between in the desert, in a time of testing between Jesus' birth, which announces his identity as the Son of God, and his entrance into public ministry, stood this space in between. This desert of testing. Between the Israelites being declared free from slavery and set apart as God's people for the sake of salvation of the whole world, and their entrance into the promised land, was their space in between. Their desert of testing. Why is this story here? I think we're now ready to answer that question. I think this story is here because it's presenting not just a parallel between God's people in the Old Testament and Jesus, but it's actually presenting a, a parallel between them and us. Because you see, we too have been set apart for God's purposes in the world. You and I, here this morning, we sang about it. If you're the redeemed, then you praise God. You say something about it. We've been set apart for God's purposes in this world. And sometimes before we can fully enter into the places of ministry and promise that God is keeping for us, there just needs to be a time of testing. It's necessary because it forces us to truly consider not just what we say we believe, but what we actually believe believe. It is not hard to believe with our lips, but it is hard to believe with our lives, and that is entirely different. 
As we seek to be led by the Spirit, we will be tested. Our fitness for ministry depends on our ability to stand firm in places where the stakes are high. I think the minute we say yes to the purposes of God, the tempter comes. Just look at Jesus. The angels sang, and then the devil came. They had barely finished the cantata about his birth, and there was the devil right there. Spiritual claims are always grounds for battle. You throw your spiritual stake in the ground, and you better get ready. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and so he was tested before he could step fully into the ministry that God had called him into. When we claim to belong to God, we too will be tested as we seek to step into the places that God has for us. Which brings me full circle. This is the part where I'm going to give you a little update on the crossing. Our doors have now been open for nine months, and I can definitely see how we've been tested as a new church and how I have been tested personally and as a pastor. We said yes to the purposes of God in planting the crossing, and the testing began. And really, the tests feel strikingly similar to those Jesus was presented with. Temptations around doubting whether or not God will provide. Doubts that God might not really protect us. And there is always, always, always a temptation to grab for glory that belongs to only God. Hard not to compare to other church plants and church planters and say, why doesn't it look like that? There have been some really great parts of our first nine months together, but also some ways in which I just, I'm really aware of the regular presence of these temptations. Regular, daily, <laughs> daily. So I want to be hopeful and honest in sharing some updates with you guys, um, but I also don't want to sugarcoat anything. I'm sure you've all had plenty of sugar this week. Since opening our doors, um, we've lost two families that kind of were with us, but kind of moved on, and we've gained three. Lost two, gained three. Net growth, very minimal. We've had a handful of visitors, not including a lot of supportive friends and family who show up to cheer us on. And we sense one of the challenges that um, Sheldon alluded to is our evening time and our remote location. So for those of you that have not been out to visit us, Sherry and Steve have, um, we're in a beautiful lodge, tucked way in a Boy Scout camp that's a little bit off the beaten path. It's off of a main exit in the new highway, but if you don't know what's there, you're not going to just stumble on it. Um, our time and location can be assets, uh, but so far we have yet to be convinced that that's the case. We love our lodge for its usability and affordability. It's only $85 a week. But it is, like I said, far from a place that someone's just going to pass by and see that there's a new church there. So this has made growth challenging. This has made growth challenging for us. And I think added to that is just kind of the noise of being in a community. Um, we're considered part of Hudson, even though Holton has its own zip code. But there's a lot of noise from other churches that are in Hudson proper. And we're really, all along, we've been trying to draw a different crowd in the rural corner of our community. 
um, around the edges. And I think it's here that I really find myself battling temptations to put ourselves out there, especially on social media. I'm just going to openly name that that is a hard place to be as a church planter, a really hard place to be. Social media is weird. It is just weird because I think it falls somewhere between uh, pleading publicity and gracious hospitality. I'm not really sure how to categorize it some days, if I'm honest. And some days I think I do feel that temptation to promote myself instead of trusting that God will do it for us the way Jesus did. So trying to get people to walk through the door has been the hardest part so far. Definitely the hardest part. Um, Very slow growth trajectory. What has been good? Our people. Our core is amazing. Truly amazing. I love every single one of them. I was talking to my church planting coach a few weeks ago, and he was sharing his nightmare stories from when he planted his church and telling me about how bad it got at one point. They had no building. They were meeting in a park. They were down to like 25 people, and one of them was a very needy family that just sucked the life out of everybody. And I said, man, that is not my reality. We've got about 12, 13 families, and I literally love every single one of them. There's not a family that walks through the doors that we go, oh no, here comes the needy ones. And even if that were the case, is that not what the church is for? But for now, I praise God that we have a really solid core. Um, We have a good mix of families with teens, um, some families with small kids, um, a couple of new, young, newly married. So we've had two couples get married since our church opened their doors, and a third couple is getting married this summer, Um, have done premarital for for all three of them. Um, So a good mix and a handful of singles, so that I feel like we have a good mix Uh, Our discipleship structure is continuing to gain momentum. Um, That's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of growth from that structure, and I think we have potential for more. Our crossing teens have also been a bright spot. I think they have energy and ideas, and they seem to enjoy our laid-back lodge vibe of church. Uh, They do a great job of inviting their friends to events. We actually have one tomorrow, and I can see that they're inviting their friends. Um, In terms of structures and logistics, I feel like we have a lot going for us. But the one thing we're just missing is more people. And so it's at this intersection that it does become tempting to doubt that God will provide. It does become tempting to doubt that God's going to protect and prosper us. And it does feel like we are in a space in between. This fall, we explored not just one, but two seemingly viable facilities in our community that would have enabled us to begin meeting in the morning, and both fell through. One of them was to the point of putting, putting it all on paper, and three days later got an email saying, we've changed our mind. And that particular location would have been smack dab dead center in the middle of our community in a new event center at a golf course. God said no. And so we have to trust that his no isn't punishment, it's protection. And I surely don't need to jump off the new Stillwater Bridge to prove it. On a personal level, our family has faced 400 level testing this past year. Last year at this time, our daughter was in the hospital for the third time. Ten days each, she has spent more than three months out of our home this last year receiving medical help. I'm not able to share details, but I can tell you that Jason and I have had to reach hard for God's word. Hard. 
to sustain ourselves in the middle of these tests. When you are led by the Spirit, the tempter will come. So as you pray for us, I would ask that you would pray for a filling of the Spirit for our people. My sense is that God wants more for us in learning how to be people of prayer and the word who are moved by the Spirit of God at every turn. Maybe what feels like a time of testing for us is our space in between at the crossing because God already called us to plant this church and I believe with all of my heart that he is planning and holding on to greater places of ministry and promise for us. But in between, he's testing us. And so as we finish our time together this morning, I want to share the question with you. Where are you at in the space in between? Not just the obvious one with the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, but maybe on a bigger level. How are you handling the desert and testing in your life? A few things for us to keep in mind as we finish. Number one, if you are pursuing the Spirit, you will be tested. Don't let that trouble you. If you are not being tested, let that trouble you. Check and see if you're pursuing the Spirit. I wonder if some of you are experiencing some of the very same tests that Jesus experienced as he was preparing to step publicly into the ministry God had set him apart for. If that's you, hold tight. God has you. He will provide, he will protect, and he will prosper you. Number two, know your Bible. This is not about Sunday school stickers and Bible quiz scores. It is about survival. Jesus could stand firm because he not only had God's word, but he knew how to apply it. Patrick, if you want to go to the picture. The mother that we took in this week. The only things that survived this fire, she ran back for all of her documents, passport, visa, all of that stuff, and her Bible. Look at her Bible. It's covered in soot. It's in our basement. I can smell the smoke from 10 feet away if it's on the table. Not a single page burned. We need to know God's word and to make it the most important survival tool we own. Number three, always look to Jesus. Remember, he is the son of God who performs perfectly under pressure where we fall short. Learn from his example in the space in between. People of Bethel, thank you for walking with us. You are precious to us. We give thanks for you regularly. Please know that your prayers specifically out of all the churches that are supporting us, your prayers and support are spurring us on greatly. And in return, as we share this space in between with you today, I just, I pray, I pray that you will pass whatever test comes your way with Jesus as your rock-solid example. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are grateful for your example to us. We are so grateful that you truly are the Son of God and that no test or temptation can ever strip that truth. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us a model of what it looks like to stand in the face of temptation, 
to be led by the Spirit and to move towards places of ministry. God, I thank you for the people of Bethel and for the way they have encouraged the crossing. I pray that you would be powerfully present with them, with each member of this church as they move into the new year together, God. I pray that they would learn new ways to stand, new ways to face temptation, new ways to be confident that you are who you say you are, God, and we can take you at your word. So Spirit, would you fill us? Oh yes, what a bold and almost foolish thing to ask, that you would fill us so that we can be about the kingdom for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical covenant church outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin, and you can find out more about us at BethelCov.org.